Hey everyone, welcome to the 21st episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Margie Zessinger, the head of women's tennis at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. She was the 2021 PTR Member of the Year, and she's coached several women's players to ITF championships, junior Grand Slam titles, and NCAA championships. On today's episode, we discuss growing the women's game, creating a competitive practice environment, and what she's learned from working alongside legendary coach Nick Volatari. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Margie, welcome to the pod. Hey, John. How's it going? We we haven't spoken in a while. We met we met through Mallory Cecil, mm-hmm. who is one of the she's the only, I don't know if she's the only or the second player at Duke to ever win an NCAA singles title, but she won as a freshman. She came in, the Duke women won that national championship. And she, of course, trained down with you in Bradenton and had a great relationship with you. So I think that was 2000. You can help me on that. What what year was that? Probably around 2004, 2005 time period. God, I don't know where the time went. <laughs> I know. Um, so, so I have known you since then, and you have been at IMG uh, for all that time. I think it's been almost 20 years. Um, so can you just tell the listener what your role is, kind of what you do on a daily basis down there? Yeah, I mean, my role has evolved in so many ways every year. Um, but eventually, over the past five years, I am head of the women's tennis program in IMG, which means I oversee all of the player development of every single girl there, as well as the professionals that come in. So from the entire spectrum, from girls starting out to all the way to one in the world. You've been at IMG for a long time, like you said, and in the past, they kind of had the boys and the girls training together. And then a few years ago, they decided to create a female division and a male division. So what was kind of the thought process behind behind that decision? The thought was how to get more girl tennis players. I mean, I think at academies in general or anywhere you see, you always see more male players or boy tennis players. Um, I think the ratio at the time when I started, we had, you know, probably about 120 boys and maybe 60 girls. And to this day, we have 110 girls for the past few years. So it's remarkable. Has the percentage evened out? Like you have 110 girls. Is it is it close to 50-50 or is it still? Yeah, just, we're, still- we're, uh, that's one of my goals. I'm super competitive and I, we always joke around about it at the academy. But I say we're going to have more girls than boys. And I do that because I think it it's a sign of a healthy environment. How have you attracted those girls to get into the sport and to come down and train with you all? Wow. I mean, learning from a lot of my failures and mistakes is one thing is, you know, when I first started this role, bringing in talent was really important, but I think more so bringing in the right talent that has good character so that it trickles down to every layer. And then it just comes down to building an environment that's happy, that they enjoy coming to. You know, tennis is a a sport where you're in it for many, many years. Eventually you can reach your goals, but if you are not happy and not enjoying it, a lot of times that's when girls stop tennis. And so creating an environment where no matter what level they are, that they enjoy coming to it. You mentioned looking for character in those players. What are some of the characteristics that you look for that you value uh, in a junior female tennis player? 
So at the beginning, I always thought that, you know, I think part of our job as a coach, you feel like you can change everyone. And, you know, it's, I look at it as a challenge that the girls don't have to be perfect and that we can build their character. Um, but at the end, you know, what I've learned over the years is actually bringing in the right girls and learning to say no when you feel that that it isn't a fit for them and not being afraid to say no to actually grow a program. It sounds crazy, but, you know, as coaches, I think, yeah, bringing this girl or, you know, another player and it's just going to add to our, our girls program, but saying no actually will grow if you say no to individuals that don't fit, but specific characteristics, you know, I would say you just get a, a feel every player that comes to the Academy I make sure that I spend time with and interview them, bring them in and just get to know them. And you can feel if, if they're a right fit or not. Just over time, I think over the years, I just, you develop a, a sense, um, not right every time, but for the most part, I mean, girls that, you know, they want to be there and they're open and respectful. I think having our girls behave well and treat one another kindly. One of the most important things for me is that, you know, I can see even on like Instagram, our girls are reposting each other's results and just creating a camaraderie, which is very unique in women's tennis um, to be supportive of one another, but it can work and it can happen. When you talk about saying no, it's interesting because, you know, coaching at Duke and Wake Forest and those teams, if you have eight, it's only eight or 10 kids on a college team. But if you had one person who didn't fit in or who wasn't great, it's amazing how one verse nine still kind of poisons the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to to have everyone kind of on the same page. And like you said, rooting for each other, that's super rare. I don't know how you've done that, but. I think, um, you know, you pick out a few girls that you can see great leadership qualities in them, and then they become influencers and it's really huge. I mean, I we were talking earlier about how the academy has evolved, and in the past, Boletari and IMG was you know really known for you know the Agassiz, the Couriers, and and just being super competitive. And how do we bring that competitive edge? How do we keep that in a girls' environment because that can get really sticky when girls are competing on a regular basis, and um, just creating that environment of competing and supporting one another and learning from their competition is really important because I know girls like to just practice and drill, but getting them to learn, you know, how to compete and how to play points on a, on a daily basis. Like for example, today we had a, a UTR tournament in the middle of a week. It's just practice, but walking around the academy, it felt like I was at an ITF, you know, and it felt like, like a pre Eddie her. And I'm thinking, you know, this is just practice. And how do we create that environment with girls? That's, I think that's been the, one of the trickier things that I've learned coming back to junior tennis is getting people to compete as their best selves, uh, full speed with no worries and just like a passion for the game. I found that very difficult, uh, especially in practice with each other besides doing, you know, the, the UTRs or, or other things like that to make it more real. How have you allowed them to free themselves up and just compete for the joy of competing versus maybe chasing a result? Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one because, 
you know, at when we play, we play a lot of matches at the academy. So our goal with uh, the players is to get to at least 60 matches in the academy for the year from August until June when they leave for the summer for tournaments or if they stay. But um, our match count, like from now until January is about 30 that we're aiming for. And it just becomes so routine. Our coaches are, are, we train our coaches that we do match debriefing. So right after a match, you think, I know when I traveled as a, a travel coach that I would always allow my, the girl or the player to have time to kind of uh, cool off after her match. And then we would have a meeting maybe in the evening and talk about the match and just let her cool off from emotion. But we've kind of done the opposite at the academy with the girls and it's worked. The coaches right away after the match have a, an interview. So they put the, the girl on a camera and she talks about the match. So when you first start that process, the girls are like, how did your match go? How did you play? You know, when they first start and they're like, good, bad, you know, one word answers. And by the end of the year, I mean, you have girls at every single level talking, uh, speaking about their matches and they sound like tennis coaches. They say what they did well and, and they give specifics about their player, their opponent's weaknesses and their strengths and how they wanted to play. And I think they don't think about it anymore. So they play a match, they do a match interview right away afterwards. And it's, it's, it's just part of a skill as if they were, you know, working on forehands out of a basket and it just becomes innate in these girls. So you'll see girls at the academy that, you know, all levels that you look at them and maybe their strokes are not perfect, but they compete really well now. It's such, it's the, to me, it's the most valuable skill. If you told me that you had a player and you're like, ah, oh, the serve's not great and forehand so-so and she's got a weird grip, but she competes like an animal, I'm like, oh, sign me up, man. And I just wish more players maybe embrace kind of looking at that side of their game and going, you know what I want to be is I want someone to show up at my academy or my club and point me out and go, that person competes the hardest. Might not have yeah. the most beautiful strokes, but uh, I just think it's such an undervalued skill. You know, talking back to you working with the boys and the girls, did you see any differences in the way that the boys competed versus the girls? As far as competing, I'll say I'll kind of cover what what's the difference between working with boys and girls and what they value. And I've been challenged that many times. So even from people asking, I think um, my counterpart on the male side, they asked us, you know, what, what is the difference between working with males and females? And he's really good with the computer and he put together a pie chart and he's like, he, on that pie chart, he said, well, what would you put? And I said, uh, it would be boys, like let's put competition and let's put individuality. And so on the boys side, we said they value competing in practice. And so we put a number and this is subjective. This is just our opinions, but 70% of it would be they value competing, 30% individualism. And I said, on, on the girl side, I think they value 60% individualism, being treated as an individual in practice, and 40% competition. Those were just our estimates. And I think that is a big part if you do have a competitive environment with girls that you're not just competing and you're not just throwing them into big groups, even though you may have a team, a college team, or you have a club and you have a group of, of girls, but you're also making them feel 
like an individual. So just that example of taking them after the match and interviewing them or taking them after the match, interviewing them, and then working on something that they, you know, found from their match that they wanted to work on. So um, following up with that individuality is really important if you are creating a competitive environment with girls. So what, I came from Duke, right? And so that's 10 years of coaching 18 to 22-year-old boys. And I moved to Charleston and I work privately pretty intensively with probably 10 players and nine of them are girls age mm-hmm. 14 to 18. And so that was like an adjustment, right? What other things should someone like me be looking out for? Because I'm I'm a very um, task-oriented person. I see a stroke or I see a tactic and I want to fix it and I always have to remind myself to remember that I'm coaching a human being, but what, what are some other piece of advice you can give me for, for kind of coaching the junior female player? I would say in the practice environment, making competition as regular as if you were working on baskets, you know, and, and competing. But if you do travel with them to tournaments, uh, understanding what, what makes that, what brings out the best in girls. And one thing that I found over time traveling with girls when they're competing is that if there are some things that it sounds like you like to really see it, fix it. And uh, if there are some of those things, I would always do that the day before the match or the night before the match, rather than right before the match. Uh, There's a tendency of coaches right before the girl goes on the court that that they want to tell the, that player so many so much information about how they should play that day. And what you're trying to do that day is to motivate them and to get them in the right state of competing and not to overwhelm them with information. So any information, I would always say, do that the night before the match or the day before the match. And then the day of, it's just how much you believe in them or whatever you need to do to get the best out of them. My, I had an assistant coach at Duke and Dave Hagamus. I'm pretty sure he still coaches at MIT. And he used to call it on both sides, coach and player cramming for the exam. He's like, you're warming up for a match. He's like, you got what you got, man. Like, he's like, I'm not telling you anything. I've been telling you for a month what you should be doing. Hayes in the barn, go play. We'll figure it out after. And I I love that. That stuck with me forever. really, Really good advice. And even that day of, I mean, if there are specific sh- shots that you're looking for from that that girl uh, when she plays that match, for example, if you're wanting to, her to hit more drop shots in that match based on her opponent, just feed feed her the drop shots. Don't talk about it, you know. Just or if she needs to hit, you want her hitting wide serves that day, just you know, based on the opponent's weakness. Just have her hit extra wide serves. Don't say, don't forget to hit the wide serves because you need to do this and this and overwhelm them with information. Just do the skill. But um, yeah, that's my best advice when when they're at the tournaments because that's ultimately where we're trying to get them to compete the best. So so hard as a coach to tell yourself to shut up though. It is so, it's so <laughs> difficult. Like I always remind myself, I go saying too little is better than saying too much, but I'm like having this war with myself and sometimes a player will look at me and go, it looks like you're thinking. And I'm literally like, should I say it? Should I not? I go, no, I'm all good. You know, I'm just, I'm just hanging out. I had so many of those moments where, uh, especially like as you travel, um, you know, and they, even in the junior slams now, they let you uh, coach in between 
changeovers or if you go to junior tournament and you coach in between a second and third set tie or tiebreaker or third set, uh, you have those coaching moments on what you should be saying in such a little period of time. And I remember, I think it was, I don't know how old Whitney Osigway was, but I was at the Easter Bowl finals with her. And I remember she was playing a match. She lost the first set. She was down in the second set, 5-2. She came back and then she took it to a third set. And then I wanted to tell her how flat she was hitting her backhand. She was on her back foot. She was going down the line too much. I had all these mental notes in that moment that I was going to say it to her. And then for some reason, I held back. I kind of did a what you do, which you battle. Should I say it or not say it? And I didn't say it. And then in that third set, she was down 5-2 or I forget how much she was down, but it was significant. And then to come back, she must have hit four or five down the line, flat backhand winners from so far behind the baseline. And if I would have told her what I was looking for in that moment, I mean, that's what worked for her. And I think sometimes I'm glad I didn't say it. And I can't tell you how many times I've had moments where I'm glad I didn't speak what I what I thought in the moment and just kind of held back and and listened to her. And, and it's more about getting them to feel a certain way about themselves in those moments versus information. That puzzle right there is why I love coaching. It's mm-hmm. the best. I mean, if it, the strokes are the strokes and everyone knows like, you know, whatever, simple, basic tactics, but what you just talked about there and, and when to say what and how to say it is, is everything. So you played one at James Madison. Mm-hmm you then decided to become a coach. What was it about your playing experience or your collegiate experience that kind of pushed you into the coaching world? So I would even go further back. I mean, growing up in Erie, Pennsylvania, tennis was not big at all. So I always had such a self-drive for tennis in general and love and passion for it. And then when I went to college, I, everybody always has the dream of becoming, you know, professional tennis player. But if I wasn't going to do that, I wanted to really excel at something that was so unique. And I I saw an opportunity that there were not, there were female coaches in the, the college industry a lot more so than just player development. And there were, you know, I had, I originally had a female coach myself, but I thought I wanted to go out there and be one of the best female coaches. And that was kind of my, my vision. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to the best place in the world. And at the time, I mean, Nick Boletari was like magical to the tennis world. And I think when I was a teenager, I had gone down there a few times myself and there was something really just special about the place. And so when I got there, yeah, I mean, it was just following my passion and going for it. But college tennis, what an amazing experience. I know you were a huge part of coaching at such a high level in college tennis, but there's nothing like that, that competitive feeling. And just to carry that over, I didn't want it to be done. You know, you, you play your last match as a senior in college and you're like, is this going to be done? And so I had to continue somewhere in the tennis industry. I always felt like I I try to explain to people And the way I described it was like, if you, you know, playing pro or, you know, past college would be fun, but I think it's even more rewarding if you're involved in tennis and you help say a Whitney 
Oswege reach her goal. So yeah. I'm competitive, but I let someone else experience their dream. And I was a part of that. That is kind of what drew me into the coaching world. And my coaching goals have evolved so much. So when I first started coaching and, and just in this past story, I was saying I wanted to be the best. It was all kind of about me. Uh, you know, I wanted to sit at Wimbledon or whatever my vision was as a 21 a, a year old. But then it just changes over time. It becomes way deeper than that. You're, you're influencing thousands of people's lives and changing them and creating memories that stay with them for their lifetime. And uh, that, that's been a, a huge change. Is, I remember when I first started, Nick kept saying, it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. And then I didn't really, it didn't connect with me because I was like, it's all about getting to Wimbledon and coaching at US Open. And, and then there was a moment, I think I was in Las Vegas where Andre Agassi was there. He was mentoring one of the players I had. And he was telling us that his career changed when he was about 27 years old. And at that point he began playing tennis for influenced children. And that was like his biggest platform and his passion. And at that moment I thought, yeah, that's what I do. I, you know, we influence children. And um, that has continued with me from that on. And that's where I get my most, my passion from is changing people's lives. It's more than just tennis. You said you had a goal originally of being one of the best female coaches, and you've certainly done that. You're just one of the best coaches in the country, period. Why do you think there are so many more male coaches than female coaches across in like the junior player development world? Yeah, I mean, this question's asked all the time. I mean, even last week or two weeks ago, we had a PTR women's coaching symposium and, you know, that coaching, there were so many discussions why there are more uh, male coaches than, than female coaches. And I think it's a combination of things. There's so many factors, but I also believe that getting girls more passionate about staying in the sport happens with getting more girl tennis players and getting at a younger age, um, getting them to fall in love with the sport, just like we did, you know, and um, starts at a younger age than just recruiting women out of college or whatever. But I think it's just creating that whole uh, more, more girl tennis players and being competitive about it. Like I'm sitting here saying, yes, we have 110 girls and I, I'm proud of it. And we need to keep, you know, not just me at an academy, you know, excited about it, but in every club and across the country or, you know, college tennis is just getting girls excited. And one thing is, you know, they make fun of me is when I go into meetings, I always brag about the girls results and they go, here comes Margie with the girls results. And I think creating a buzz wherever you are about your, whatever you're representing for girls. And um, I told the PTRW, I said next year, we had about 40 women coaches. I said, we need to fill this room next year. It needs to be a hundred. And just putting that number out there and going after it because it does happen. They would laugh at me when I said, I want a hundred girls here. And now here, here we are. So we're going to finish here with Instagram questions. And the first one you've kind of alluded to it, but you've obviously spent a lot of time with Nick Bolletieri. What are some of the most memorable lessons or, you know, pieces of advice that he's given you over the last 20 years? 
I would say, I mean, he sets the standard. I think it's not even pieces of advice is just he, he would set such a high standard. So when my first day on the job, uh, he was there at five in the morning. And if I wasn't there at four forty-five in the morning, getting everything ready and just making sure everything's top-notch professional and staying one step ahead of him. Um, I think the work ethic is what he led by example. And I think I'm not afraid to grind and work hard and long hours or do jobs that no matter what, if they tell me to, if I have to squeegee the courts or, you know, work with adult tennis players, whatever the the role is to be open-minded and every job serve or role serves a purpose in teaching you a skill. And yeah, I, I would just say work ethic from Nick and being really passionate. He gets really excited about things and that's kind of how I am with the girls program. And I think uh, it requires that much passion to build whatever you want in your life and your career. I think it was Jim Harbaugh maybe, but he was saying like his, his famous saying at Michigan was like, you can't uh, accomplish anything without an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. And you mentioned it earlier with getting more girls in the program and then Nick, but that enthusiasm, that energy, I feel like has to be at any program or even in any practice. Otherwise I just, I feel like it's the fuel for you. If you don't have it, even if you're listening to a coach or you're trying your best as a player, but you don't have that enthusiasm, I just feel like it's really tough to improve. Yeah. I mean, even before this podcast, I have the head coaches that work with the girls. They all call me almost every night. We're talking about the players. I'm getting, I'm like, did you hear this? Or, you know, I mean, that excitement is so important to have um, because it carries over into your team environment and carries over into the girls. So um, passion and enthusiasm about whatever you're doing is, is so important. And I think that's the biggest thing that, that you see Nick. I mean, right now he's 91 years old and he's calling me, you know, with ideas like the other day at seven in the morning, he called me, I think you need to do this, you know? And uh, in, in fact, one of the things he suggested, he's like, Margie, you need to do a podcast about this, about you understand the girls. And so, I mean, he's, his mind is always going even, you know, no matter what. And I think not being complacent and um, going for ideas that other people don't do and, and it's okay to fail. What have you learned as a coach specifically about the game of tennis that you wish you had known when you were actually a player? Oh my gosh. <laughs> where, where do you even, where do you even if you, if you need If you need to give us like two or three, that's allowed. But I mean, it's a, it's a long list for all of us, but what, what would you kind of go down with? I would say one of the most important things for me is I would always just focus on myself in the match. I think I was so uh, in tuned on just how I was playing and I, I noticing how important it is to learn about your opponent's weaknesses and capitalize on them. And I think that tennis IQ of breaking down your opponent and that every, every player has a hole and figuring out their holes and matching them up with your strengths. But that is one advice that I really have, you know, learned over the years and, and just from a, um, I don't think when we played, 
there wasn't much sports psychology and mental toughness. It was if we, we picked up a book, I know like in the nineties, if someone sent me a book on from uh, Dr. Lair or whatever it was uh, on mental toughness, you just really read the book. But I think it's interesting, the emphasis on sports psychology today and how some of the players are using sports psychologists and um, the importance of fitness and just everything but the tennis, how it all plays a factor in performance, their nutrition and, um, you know, how they, I mean, I would stretch on my own, but I don't think I was doing anything right. And now, nowadays, like the physios and the exercises that all of the kids are exposed to and the knowledge is just incredible. I think I would take more advantage of that holistic approach and making sure that my body and mind were really, really strong and ready to compete. And this is the most famous question on my podcast, at least, but, and you got to get specific here. Okay. What is your best, what is your best advice for the three, five or the four O adult player? What's going to help them win more matches, Margie? In single, in singles or doubles? Uh, if you have one of both, give us both, but if not, give us singles. I think with adult tennis versus juniors, when I see the adults, they're almost trying so hard and I always say for adults, less is more, you know, they're, they have a tendency to really like force things. And, and I think, um, just kind of almost holding them back a little bit more, they like throw their body at the ball or force the shots. And I think the biggest advice is less is more and just calming down their, their body and their strokes and not forcing things as much. That's great advice. It always, I always kind of say like, it, it shouldn't look that complicated. Like you're just trying to hit a forehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my old coaches, I think he called it an octopus falling out of a tree when you started like kind of spazzing out like that, but um, yeah. that's great. That's great. It's advice. that body control that you see. I mean, if you look at the junior tennis, well, you look at the professional tennis player and you can just see how well they control their body, you know? And, and I think same advice for, for the adults, but that was a tricky question that you came I know it's hard. I always ask these terrible questions where I say, give me one thing and you could probably choose from a thousand. I'm putting you on the spot and giving you like three seconds to react. So I know that (laughs) that can be hard. It's good. Um, Okay, Margie, it was great catching up. Good learning about your program and obviously your insight. It's been way too long. Uh, Hopefully I will be down at Eddie Her this year so I can see you then. Until then, all the best and, and keep doing such a great job. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Margie for joining us today. Lots of great perspective on the women's game, growing the women's game, but also the competitive mindset. It can be difficult as a coach or a player to find practice matches during the week, but I was blown away by the 60 practice matches that they try to get their students at IMG every school year. Add that to probably 50 or 75 real matches that they compete in, and the players at IMG are getting a lot of set of match play in. If you want to get good at playing matches, you need to get lots of sets and practice matches in whenever possible. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.